So we'll begin. Fortnite's complaint has a break. Did you talk to your parents about Fortnite's complaint? You didn't ask them. They'll make you wash out your mouth with soap if you even ask them. I posted one of your statements regarding it on Facebook, and a whole bunch of people liked the status. <laughs> uh, what did you post? Fortnite's complaint is great, but parts of it could end up on 4chan. <laughs> okay, good. Can't tell them um, about that game. What? What? The game. I just lost the game. Thanks, Sahar. <laughs> the game is whoever mentions the game first loses. That too. No, whoever like thinks about the game loses. Think about the game, you lose. It's really stupid. Oh, that. It's oh, like right. Really yeah, yeah. No, no. I saw that. Okay. Um, <laughs> so does that mean the three of you have now lost? You've all lost. No, Good. What? No. Not everyone. <laughs> and this is a game that goes on in your head. It's just like Paradise Lost, really. It's about the human. <laughs> all right. Um, how are we in Paradise Lost? Are we all caught up? Book eight? Everyone to book eight? End of book eight? Oh, I thought we were supposed to be done. Everyone done? <laughs> you know, no, I feel you better. two should talk. <laughs> no, I okay, feel so you, because I know, but you got your paper in. Oh, so, so you're you're the Abdiel figure. Who is Abdiel? That one angel. Got it, go, go. <laughs> the guy uh, who sticks with God, go yeah, on. Yeah, well, he was first um, in Satan's crowd, but then he realized that he didn't agree with it, so he um, just turned back to God and he was forgiven. He wasn't. He actually wasn't forgiven. He was. He was never a rebel. Um, Satan takes his. So Satan commands a third of the host of heaven, um, and you can ask yourself. You should ask yourself why is heaven run like um, a military state? That is why are all the angels in heaven? Um, why do they all have military rank? Um, and why do they all belong to some kind of military um, uh, units or bodies, divisions, and so on? Um, Satan is the commander of, you know, he's the equivalent of a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, he's the commander of one-third of the host of heaven. Um, the Milton's experience of this is the Civil War. That is, again, just, we're, we're, we really are going to spend a lot of time on Paradise Lost today, but a little bit more context. Um, the English Civil War, the, the parliamentary army was called the New Model Army. Um, the army that eventually won the Civil War under, essentially under the command of Oliver Cromwell. And the New Model Army was, um, part of what was new about it um, was that um, the, all the rank and file of the New Model Army spent a lot of time thinking about what they were doing and discussing it um, and um, uh, writing, um, some of them writing about it, reading about it, reading philosophical, theological, polemical, um, uh, works about uh, why kingship was tyranny and why King Charles was making himself into a kind of um, substitute for God um, and demanding a kind of idolatrous obedience to, a, to the king where all your obedience should be to God. Um, the Protestant view, as opposed to the um, Catholic view that it was protesting against, um, you know the Protestant means the, the protesting movement. It's a pro protestation against Catholicism. The Protestant view was that um, authority figures didn't get to tell you what the Bible meant, um, that you got to figure it out for yourself using the light of conscience. 
Um, that is, you would read the Bible, you would um, consult your own conscience. This is something that God describes, do you remember, in Book 3 of Paradise Lost? He says, um, I will give humans, or as he puts it, man, but by man he means all humans, um, my umpire conscience, um, so that we are given two things by God in order to um, be moral and um, uh, devoted, in order to be figures devoted to the good. Um, we're given two things by God. We're given um, scripture, that is the true story of what happened um, in ancient <coughs> Israel, in the ancient Near East, and then um, in Jerusalem uh, with the coming of Jesus. And we are also given conscience in order to understand how to interpret the things that occur in the Bible. Because there are a lot of things that are sketchy in various ways. Um, one of the things that's sketchy is the question of free will. Um, we said this before, but I'll remind you now that Luther, who was the, um, uh, the basically the origin of Protestantism, that's way too simplified, but so what, um, basically the originator of Protestantism, Luther um, wrote a very, very significant book called The Bondage of the Will, and he said in that book, our wills aren't free, we know this from the Bible, um, we know it from the Bible because in the Bible we are told um, that Pharaoh kept saying to Moses, please go, I'm tired of these plagues. And then Moses and the children of Israel prepared to go and started going. And then nine times after, after or ten times after, the, after each of the ten plagues, the same line recurs in Exodus and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. And so Moses has to come up with another plague. And then Pharaoh says, go, but then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So according to Exodus, Luther says, um, Pharaoh, using his free will, wants to let the children of Israel go, but God keeps changing Pharaoh's own will. God re, um, uh, reforms, reforges Pharaoh's will so that Pharaoh then says no when he wanted to say yes. And every time he says no, he gets into more trouble. So he's being punished, says Luther, for doing what God makes him do. You could say, um, and it would be somewhat more proper and a little bit more subtle to say, what God makes him want to do, what God makes him will to do. But, he, but God is still the origin of this, and he's being punished for what God makes him will to do. And Luther says, we can't really understand this. It, makes, it doesn't seem just to us. But... Our brains are only two kilograms in size, in mass, and you can't expect to understand the laws of the universe with, those, with brains that small if the Bible says it. Um, and it really does say it, then what you have to do is figure out what the Bible says. So that's, a, that's a, an explicit example of Luther making a claim about what the Bible says that leads him to the idea that there's no such thing as free will. 
However, the more general idea is that um, you should look at the conscience God gave you. You should notice how you feel about things. You should, you should rely on your own conscience as a light to read the Bible. And Milton is more generally Protestant, or he's Protestant in, a, in, the, in the more important general sense, when he thinks there is free will. Because he reads the Bible and he says, essentially, it cannot be that God would punish people for what he made them do. That shocks the conscience, the idea that you would be punished for what you were forced to do. Um, the, way the, the way the noir um, novels put it is, uh, actually, I, I guess um, Chandler puts it this way, you know what he's going to, Bogart or Marlowe says this, you know what he's going to do to me, don't you? He's going to knock my teeth out and then, and then um, torture me for mumbling. Um, so can God be someone who will, who will knock your teeth out and then punish you for mumbling? Um, for Milton, that is unconscionable. And because conscience matters in interpretation, and you, can, you know that conscience matters in interpretation, right? That is, if you read a story, there's a bad guy and a good guy, and we're on the side <coughs> of the good guy because we have consciences. Otherwise, we might, you know, do the parody version of a story, which is, oh, yeah, it was a great, great book. Um, this, this guy, Claudius, he figured out how to get rid of his horrible nephew, Hamlet, who um, was simply trying to get back at Claudius because he'd already killed his brother and was sleeping with his mother and was trying to kill him. Unfortunately, it's a tragedy because Claudius died too because Hamlet kind of figured it out at the very end and took Claudius with him. Um, but at least Hamlet was dead and Claudius, at least he was effective in doing that. Nothing in Hamlet prevents you from reading it that way, but um, you have to be pretty sophisticated, even if I do say so myself, to come up with that perverse reading um, because um, everything in how we respond to a story is to respond to it where we see some people innocent and some people taking advantage of their innocence. And our response comes because we read with the light of conscience. Not only do we have a backlit <coughs> smartphone, but we have a smart brain, which is backlit with the light of conscience. Um, I tried. <laughs> um, so... The, um, so for Milton, it was unconscionable to think that God would punish you for something that he made you do. For Milton, that was unconscionable. Um, and we know that from the very start when he says, I come to justify the ways of God to men. That is, I come to convince you that God is just rather than simply saying, of course God's just, God is just by definition. So that's, in a way, the most important single line in Paradise Lost. And it's a line that Milton, um, you can tell it's important because Milton picks it up again in his last work, um, last po poetic work, which is a, a sort of um, drama, but what's called a closet drama, drama only for reading, not for performance, um, about Samson. 
um, called Samson Agonistes. Um, he repeats the line. He has the chorus. Um, remember the chorus in Aristophanes. Milton's chorus um, repeats the line, just are the ways of God and justifiable to man. So to say that God is just could simply mean to say that three equals three. That is, it could be a tautology. For Luther, it would be a tautology. Um, God determines what justice is, not in the sense of figuring out what justice is, but in saying it. If God says that um, 2 plus 3 is justice, then 2 plus 3 is justice. If God says 42 is justice, then 42 is justice. If God says um, skinning your infant child alive and um, boiling it in um, your own breast milk and then snacking on it is just, <coughs> tough, it's just. You may not get it, but God said it, therefore it's just. And it's not just because God knows more than you do. It's just just because God said it. That's what makes it just, is God saying it. It's not a judgment that God is making. It's a performance, a creation. God says, let there be light, and there is light. God can also say, let there be justice, and whatever he says is justice is justice. Um, I guess I should say this because it's so interesting. Do people know the term performative utterance? Um, if you're English majors or philosophy majors, you should. I thought there were a couple of, oh, did they drop the class? Philosophy majors? Who can blame them? Are there any philosophy <laughs> majors here? Yeah, okay. All right. So a performative utterance is it's a really interesting 20th century concept, and it's become extremely important. Um, we tend to think of sentences as describing the world. And the typical philosophical sentence that you will read so many times, it'll make you sick, is the cat is on the mat. Um, the other one that's very typical is snow is white. Um, philosophers love to think about those sentences. Lo, look, there's a, there's a mat. <gasps> there's a cat on it. The cat is on the mat. That is what a true sentence looks like. And snow, it's white. Well, not in Waltham, but in many places, mm. um, snow is white. So, the, so those, are, those are analyzed as typical sentences that if we can figure out how those sentences can mean what they mean and what the facts that they describe are, then we will understand the most important features of language in the world and truth and so on. Um, so in the middle of the 20th century, in the 40s, this great Oxford philosopher, J.L. Austin, um, came along and he said, actually, most sentences don't work that way. Most sentences... And he doesn't. He, he starts out. He's a very shrewd writer, so he doesn't. He doesn't um, say most sentences don't work that way. He says, "I'm actually interested in a different kind of sentence. I'm interested in the kind of sentence that looks descriptive, like the cat is on the mat, but is in fact doing something, not only describing something, like um, with this ring I be wed, or just I do, because if someone says, um, do you take?" Uh, Barbara to be your lawful wedded wife and I say I do um, I'm not reporting a fact when I say I do it's not people aren't going to say oh that's interesting he does take her to be his lawful wedded wife huh that's even more interesting than a cat being on a mat <laughs> but on the same level of things but <laughs> it's saying I do doesn't if you say I promise to get my paper in on time, for example, you're not describing something that was already true before you made the promise. Saying I promise does 
what it seems grammatically to be describing. I am making you a promise to get my paper in on time is not a description of something that would be true anyhow, but it is making, it is doing the thing that it seems to be describing. Things that do what they seem to describe, I bet that you won't get your paper in on time. I bet you $20 that you won't get your paper in on time. If I then say, well, you're on, um, I'm accepting the bet. I'm not just noticing that you're on and telling the world. I'm accepting the bet when I do that. So in all those cases, these are called performative utterances because they perform an act rather than simply describing what would be true whether, that, whether it's said or not. The cat is on the mat whether I say the cat is on the mat or not. But I don't bet that you'll get your paper in on time or I don't accept your bet unless I say I bet or I accept. I christen this ship the Sarah Palin is not my explaining to people what I'm doing, it's that I actually do christen the ship the Sarah Palin by saying that. So those are called performative utterances. And um, what the question about justice is, is whether an assertion that something is just is performative or descriptive. So the performative theory, they didn't call it this, but the performative theory of God's justice is I declare it just to um, feed children razor blades. And then it's just. Now, that idea of justice is um, one that comes out of human legality. That is, if you say something like, I declare it the law that you have to drive on the right, or we in um, Congress declare the law that people drive on the right um, and um, oncoming traffic should be on the left, um, that's a case where you're not saying, oh, we look at the world and what have we discovered? Driving on the right is what people do, so now we'll just tell the world this. We've discovered a great law of nature. You should drive on the right. Because the English will say BS. So not only the English, I know. Um, so the, when you make a law, making a law is performative. Making a law, the way a bill becomes a law, remember that little Sesame Street number, um, making a law makes it legal. If you legalize marijuana, you're not saying, oh, it turns out we in California have discovered that marijuana actually is illegal. It's that you're changing how things are. But law and justice are, for Milton, different. For some, it's not. For some, it's whatever God says is law and therefore justice. But for Milton, they're different things. So it's not the case that God is just because God is the guy who gets to say whatever is just, and whatever God does is just because God is performing justice, because God is saying, by, um, by snapping the head off Pharaoh, I am just. And that's like saying, I snapped the head off Pharaoh justly. It's like, 
I marry you legally. Um, it's not. It's not the same thing, um, according to Milton. According to Luther, it is the same thing. That if God says snapping um, the heads off little bunnies and um, using them as snuff is just, well, then it's just. If God says causing pain is just, causing pain to the innocent is just, well, then it's just. But Milton says, I am going to justify the ways of God to men. That is, I am going to show you that God is just, which Luther wouldn't have to do. He wouldn't have to do it because that would be like trying to say, I'm going to show you when someone says, I promise that I'll come tomorrow. Milton or Luther will say, it would be insane to then show that the person is promising. He says he's, he promises he'll come tomorrow. But is he really promising he'll come tomorrow? You can say he's lying when he says, I promise to come tomorrow. But notice that if you say that, what you're actually saying is, I don't think he'll come tomorrow. That is, the lie is not the assertion that he's promising. That's certainly true. If I promise that I'll come tomorrow, I'm telling the truth. If I don't come, then I break my promise. But I can only break a promise that I actually made. And I made the promise by saying, I promise. So if so, um, there's no question of trying to show that God made a promise. That is, that, um, that if someone makes a promise, you don't have to somehow write a 12-book epic showing that really was a promise. It's a promise by definition. It's automatically a promise. But to show God is just means that God isn't automatically just. And that means that you have to have some other tribunal to appeal to than what God says is just. And that other tribunal is your conscience. If God does something that seems unconscionable, then you have a right to wonder, to consider, to analyze, to think through the question, can this be just or not? That's what Milton says. That's why Milton says conscience is so important. Now, just one second. There is one law in the, well, no, I'm, I'm going to say a larger thing than a smaller thing. Um, one thing that, the, that Protestantism saw as, um, and Christianity as a whole, but Protestantism in particular, as the new covenant offered by the New Testament is that the Hebrew set of laws, the, I always forget the number, but 616 laws or whatever it is, days of the year plus bones in the body, uh, that the Hebrew set of laws, positive and negative, were mainly arbitrary, that it was a very, very legalistic set of laws, that those laws were not laws that had anything to do with justice. They were simply laws. Um, you couldn't have milk with meat. That was a law. Um, but it wasn't because there was something unjust about having milk with meat. It's just that was a law that God gave to um, Moses. Um, other, yeah. Actually, that one came about through interpretation. No, I know. You shall not see the kid in its mother's milk. Um, so there are law after law after law, um, most of which 
don't, to the light of conscience, seem to have anything to do with justice. So if you think of reform Jewry, if you think of the reform movement, if you know that, um, the reform movement is a kind of Jewish version of Protestantism. That is, it's, it's, it's what's sometimes called ethical Judaism. It's figuring out what's just and right about Judaism, rather than what these picayune laws are. That's the claim that it's making. Um, so that's the claim that Protestantism is also making. Figure out the reason for these laws, see the extent to which they actually have anything to do with justice, um, because the laws should be leading you to justice rather than justice leading you to the laws. That's Protestantism's view as well. So the um, basic idea then is that when Jesus came and said, I'm giving you a new law and canceling the old law, a new covenant, a new contract, covenant means contract, a new covenant or contract, canceling the old one. This new one is about the spirit, not the letter, as St. Paul will say. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. So if you talk about the spirit of a law, how can you know the spirit of a law unless the law is something other than what it literally says, something that you have to use your own conscience, your own mind, your own sense of right and wrong to figure out. So if you stick with the letter of the law, then you're not thinking, is what the Protestant interpretation of St. Paul says. You're not thinking about why the law exists. And it's the spirit of the law that matters. You know, again, to take a more or less neutral topic, um, there's the question of net neutrality, which I'm sure you all have um, views on. Um, so the idea would be, look, of course the FCC should um, be able to enforce net neutrality. Since communication laws were established, the idea of, of equal access to communication has been part of the very idea of communications laws since the Roosevelt administration. Or the other argument is, no, they weren't talking about the internet. They didn't know about the internet when they passed those laws. That's ridiculous to think that, um, that, that anything that Roosevelt set up could address the internet. Um, it's a whole new world, and if Comcast wants to charge for Netflix, which I guess you all know about that, no? Mm -mm. So Comcast is now trying to get Netflix to pay them to um, stream videos um, over the internet. So this is, this is um, exploding like yesterday and today. Um, and um, the idea would be, look, it's always been the case that there's been equal access to communication. That's the spirit of the law. And Comcast is saying, no, the letter of the law says nothing about us having to provide Netflix with as much bandwidth as they want. Um, nothing in the law says that. And the FCC says, yeah, but we enforce the law. And they say, yeah, but you're not allowed to enforce the law on the Internet. So that arguments are almost always between either two versions of the spirit of a law or the letter versus the spirit. Um, the picayune bureaucrat, I'm not going to renew your license. Your passport expired yesterday. Um, but you know it's me. Come on, if I'd come here yesterday, you would have renewed it. That's what the law says. You know, anytime you have a fight with the DMV, um, you're going to be arguing the spirit and they're going to be arguing the letter. 
Um, I'm sorry, it said no parking, but I wasn't parking. I just ran in to get change for the meter. Yes, but too bad for you. But how am I supposed to feed the meter if I don't have change? You've all had this argument. Um, I'm sure you never have it with your professors or with any bureaucratic offices at Brandeis. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me my points expired two minutes ago? Um, I'm sure that's never happened. Now you have the technology, too. Yeah. But so letter versus spirit. Milton is very much on the side of spirit. That's why he says, chiefly thou, O spirit, remember in the invocation of book one, chiefly thou, O spirit, who before all temples dost prefer the upright heart and pure. So temples are where you do sacrifices. Temples are where you do um, religious rituals and rites. But thou, O spirit, who before all temples dost prefer the upright heart and pure. That's what you want. Milton says. So he says it's not a gimme that God is just. We know what justice is. We know who God is. Can we consider, and when we consider, what will we come up with um, with respect to the question, is God just or not? Now, there is one exception in Paradise Lost, or possibly two, to the idea that God doesn't simply say things arbitrarily and by saying them make them just or unjust. So the crucial thing to understand about Paradise Lost, um, when you read book 9 through 12, but book 9 is the book in which Eve eats the apple and Spoiler alert, so does Adam. Um, <laughs> when you read Book Nine in Paradise Lost, have this in mind. That the one apparently arbitrary... You didn't know? That they, that, no, that's yeah, okay. uh, The one apparently arbitrary, completely legalistic, pointless rule that God gives Adam and Eve is what? Yeah, don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil. That is, don't eat the fruit of the tree of conscience. Now, that, there are two ways to understand the story of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And I, not in Paradise Lost, in general. In Paradise Lost, there's only one way to understand it. Um, and we already talked about this when we considered the first line of Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost, as I said before, um, well, really, like everything we're reading, it's an extraordinarily self-similar book. You can get the whole out of any line. Every line has the whole reflected into it, the whole compressed and condensed into it. Do I mean that literally? Yeah, I do. Um, so, the of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste broke death into the world and all our woe. You read the first line and you think, so the, that fruit is going to be really important. It's mythological fruit. It's got some substance within it that um, completely changes the mind or the brain. It's got some psychotropic drug that tells you about good and evil within it. Some indole alkaloid. 
that will cause you to know all sorts of really groovy things, man, but maybe that you shouldn't know. Yeah. I just had a, a question. I was a little confused because it's like after they both um, ate the apple, they started like desiring each other sexually. So were they like not supposed to? No, they had sex before. They this did. is one of Milton's heresies. Okay. I mean, it's it's not. It may not be a heresy, but it's okay. a it's a minority opinion, and some people would have thought it heretic. No, Milton is very clear in book four and book five that they're already having sex. And, but there's um, something like different. Yeah, it becomes hot and dirty. Okay. Um, and, uh, That's what I was confused. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's the idea that you would find dirty sex hot is the first result of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Um, that is, that, the idea, that sex would feel sinful and that that would be part of what made it hot is, in a way, the proof that they've fallen. That instead of, you know, hippie, healthy sex, oh, I think sex is the most natural thing in the world, which is what it is in the Garden of Eden, now it becomes that, that kind of sense of the pleasure is in the sinning, or as, as uh, um, the proverb goes, guilty pleasures are the best. Um, a guilty pleasure is the best pleasure, um, at least. That's a whole lot of um, sexual experience. Um, and that's what they start feeling. Um, that, there's, that, that there's something really interesting about the fact that they're seeing each other naked because they're not supposed to. Um, and that's part of the pleasure. Um, so they are having sex before the fall, but then they have hot, dirty sex followed by distaste, which is what shows you that it's, that, um, that it's like normal fallen world sex. Um, at least hot, dirty, guilty, normal, full and world meatloaf like sex. <laughs> um, you you know the song, right? No. You know meatloaf from Fight Club. No. Yeah. No meatloaf from Rocky Horror. Sorry. Which which song? Which now I'm praying for the end of time. No, you don't know it. Find it on YouTube, but not now. <laughs> no way, dog. I, I, um, so it's like you like fruit. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> suddenly we're interested. Um, so yeah, it's the psychedelic fruit. The idea is this. I mean, this is this is a long debate. The idea is the fruit has some mythological substance that makes you that that's aphrodisiac, but also gives you the knowledge of evil and um, changes everything. That's one idea. That's not Milton's idea because that would be magical, and Milton doesn't believe in magic as having moral power. Sure, he believes, at least for the purpose of the story, he believes in magic. People change their sizes. There's a lot of Alice in Wonderland stuff going on. But a little bit like Alice in Wonderland, which is heavily influenced by Milton, the magical stuff turns out not to matter. You're still Alice, even if you think you might be someone else um, at the start, even if you're confused. Remember, Alice goes into a garden. Um, and she ends up leaving a garden party. That's Eden. You're still Alice, even if you're confused and you think eating and drinking, you know, eat, eat me with the cake and drink me and nibble the mushroom, talking about indole alkaloids, that all those things are, um, affect you. Um, but then you learn that, no, you were wrong. They didn't affect you. You just thought they did. Um, but it was your dream all the way through and you were doing what you thought was happening to you. That's what Alice learns in Alice in Wonderland. 
that she was doing what she thought was happening to her. She was doing it to herself. She was dreaming it intentionally. So the um, idea then is, sure, magical stuff happens in Paradise Lost, but none of it is significant to the moral question. The moral question is when God says, picks a tree at random and says, don't touch that tree. If you do touch the tree, you've done something performative. By eating the forbidden fruit, you have done something that you'd never done before, which is you have gone against what the kindest figure in the universe, the one thing he has asked you not to do, and you have gone against him in secret because you didn't want him to simply be the object of your veneration and worship anymore because, as Satan says to Eve, and Eve accepts, if you eat the fruit, then he can, the Lord can no longer lord it over you. So the sin that Adam and Eve commit it's a little bit different for Adam um, and, and worth considering. But the sin that humans commit in general is like the sin that's very familiar to us of entertaining the idea of not loving someone that we have loved, have been loving, and whom we know, who we know wants our love, needs our love. So you've all done that. Everyone does that. And then you feel terrible. It only goes on in your mind. But you, you think about, huh, do I really love my mother? What if I look at her as, you know, just a normal kind of jerk? This isn't getting angry at her because she's embarrassed you by sending the monster ball suit back. This is um, just thinking, who is this stranger? Um... Do I really love her? You know, maybe I don't. And then you can feel a flood of guilt about that. Or even more so, with an erotic coefficient. You're desperately in love with someone, you know, it's working out, it's great. And then um, they tell you how much they love you at some point. Um, and you say, hmm, do I really love them back after you've said you did? And then you entertain the thought that you don't. And then um, that can really go bad. Or it can actually be helpful. Because then you can have a second experience of guilt. How could I even think that? And that second experience of guilt actually firms it up. But the guilt comes out of a betrayal of love. You've done something which betrayed the love that you thought you were wholly committed to. And what Adam and Eve do is they betray their love of God, which is the counterpart of his love for them. So it's not that there's anything about the fruit. It's that God said, please, guys, don't eat this fruit. And then they looked at each other and said, he's not looking. Let's eat the fruit. He'll never know, that doofus. And suddenly he's not God, he's a doofus. And then that was wrong, but it's too late. 
they did it, and they felt guilty. So the really important thing to see about the fruit is that the legalistic demand not to eat it isn't because the fruit is magical, which is what a performative theory of justice would be. It is unjust to eat this fruit. That's not what Paradise Lost is saying. It's not saying it's unjust to eat the fruit. What it's saying is it's unjust to betray the God who loves you. But Adam and Eve misunderstand that. And they understand it as it's unjust to eat this fruit, and they say that's ridiculous. How can it be unjust to eat a fruit? But that's not what the stakes are. That's not what the issue is. So the other version of that, just to just see how these things come together, is that why do people know, you should know because you read this, why does Satan rebel? Yeah, but what what catalyzes his rebellion? Uh, the creation of the sun. The creation of the sun. Yeah, so he was jealous. Yeah, it's that um, God says, "I have this day begot whom I declare my only son. Unto him all knees shall bend, and shall declare him Lord." So Satan is shocked by this as older siblings are. Satan says, wait, where did this come from? How did this happen? That we were all his children. Satan feels betrayed. Now, the reason he feels betrayed is that he feels that God has made an arbitrary decision to make the son his only son, to make a distinction between the son, the character always called the son in Paradise Lost, um, and all other created intelligences, so that somehow we humans and we other angels, we're not quite children of God the way the son is, whom I declare my only son, he says. So we're chopped liver, comparatively speaking. And um, Satan regards this moment, again, as a kind of performative moment. God says, I have this day begot whom I declare my only son. So God is saying, see? I now say, he's my only son, and by saying it, I make it so. And too bad for all of you. Now, what the loyal angels do is they say, well, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. There's very little, um, although we like a, a lot of loyal angels, Raphael especially, there's very little philosophical um, power in any of their beliefs. The loyal angels are kind of wimpy. And Milton wants us to see they're wimpy. Um, to give an example, when Milton says, okay, they're going to eat the fruit and die unless someone is willing to sacrifice themselves so that they can live, to pay the penalty for them. 
Um, do you remember what happens next? Yeah, he asks for a volunteer. Is there such love in all of heaven? Anyone want to volunteer? And like in the cartoon, all the angels, whoever wants to volunteer, step forward. And what happens? All the angels step backward. Hmm, interesting. Too bad I have that bridge game next Wednesday, or I would do it. Um, no one volunteers to save Adam and Eve. So the loyal angels to an angel won't do it. And then the son says, okay, I will. And they're amazed that he's willing to do it. And then they sing a psalm to him in which they call him by merit more than birthright son of God. That is, that moment in book three in which he's shown to be son of God by merit, not by birthright. By a judgment that he is up to the standard that you would have to meet to be son of God. Not just that a blood test showed that he was son of God, or an ichor test, or whatever flows in, in celestial veins in Milton, shows that he's son of God. But that it's actually a fact about his goodness and justice which exceeds that of any of the other angels. So goodness and justice are again separate from DNA, from, from um, simply saying, oh, I've just calved my son off of me, and that makes him my, the son of God. What makes you son of God is merit, not birthright. So, Satan doesn't get that. Just as Adam and Eve don't get that what makes the fruit the fruit is that it's a sin to eat it. It's not a sin to eat it because it's the fruit. It's the fruit because God said it was a sin to eat it, because God prohibited it. So in both cases, God says, are you going to be loyal? Do you trust me? Is essentially what happens in both cases. Do you trust me when I say that you shouldn't eat this fruit and that you should um, show your trust by obeying me? And what he says to the angels is, do you trust me when I say that he's my only begotten son? And Adam and Eve don't trust God when he says, I really don't want you eating this fruit. And Satan and a third of the angels don't trust God when he says, this is my son. And it's therefore the sin is not a sin against a belief in God's magical powers. It's a sin against a belief in God's goodness, in trusting in God's goodness. When he's demonstrated his goodness over and over and over again. You can't trust God's goodness because he's God and therefore has to be good. You trust God's goodness because he's shown it to you. And you can see this in the scenes of guilt in Paradise Lost, that the guilt is never, oh, I should never have, have tried that apple. I had no idea how addictive it would be. 
but I should never have tried that apple when God trusted me to obey him. My sin was against God's love. My sin was against love. Not the sin of coming into contact with something unclean. What The reason I should have regarded it as unclean is because God asked me to, not because it was unclean. Again, you've all had this experience. Milton, everyone we're reading, I just want to insist on this, I want to rant about this because it's our last week, everyone we're reading is talking about human experience that we've all had. To understand what's going on, understand that they're talking about our own experiences, no matter how secular we are, or no matter how much we don't believe in the Greek gods or the Roman gods. They're still talking about human experience. That's the crucial thing. And the human experience here, again, is one where you, where you realize that a way that you're disobeying has to do not with... I mean, again, the, the common human experience is, you know, um, yeah, you know, we're not supposed to throw the tennis ball around in the house because mom thinks we could break a window. But, you know, she's just, she's just worries about these things too much. We're going to do it. Um, and then it's not the stupidity of the prohibition. It's that you decided to substitute your judgment for hers. And that's what you could, you got away with it. There's actually probably nothing worse. No, well, I won't, I won't say that. But one very sad childhood experience is the first time you get away with something. That's actually sad. It feels good for a little while, like the sex that Adam and Eve have. And then you feel bad about it afterwards, the first time you get away with stuff. And if you just think about all the things you've gotten away with since then, it's not a happy thought. You can still be relieved. You know, thank goodness they never discovered that I was the one who broke that bottle of perfume. Um, she still talks about it. Or, or that I was the one who lost um, that ring that her grandmother gave her. Um, she's still sad about it. But you got away with it, but it doesn't feel good. It feels good at first, and then it stops feeling good. That's a, that's a universal or near-universal human experience. And it's an experience of conscience. And it's not the thing you got away with that matters. It's that you got away with it that's sad. That is the entry of death into your world, to quote Noel because it means that your parents can't keep you alive forever. You're no longer in the world of immortality. If Once you get away with stuff, it means your parents don't control the world. Not so good to find that out when you do find it out at age three or four or five. It's the beginning of the end. Sorry, guys. Um, but you're used to it now. So those are the issues in Paradise Lost. Conscience versus rules. And the way, again, to, 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 put, to give you a broad structure, there are those who are good because they obey the rules. Because, and they don't even think about the rules, they just obey them. And those are the good angels. Then there's the angel Monica reminded us of, Abdiel, who is obeying the rules, which is that Satan is his leader and commander, 
But when Satan says, now we are going to take arms against this new tyrannical imposition of God's, namely the promotion of the sun to um, the top of the heap, what Avdil does is to say, no, I'm supposed to obey orders, that's the rule, but justice trumps that. Doing what's right, which is not betraying God, trumps doing what the rules require. So think Nuremberg. I was just following orders. Well, no, if an order is so shocks the conscience that it would that it becomes a war crime, it's not a defense. So it's rules versus justice. The reason those people were found guilty at Nuremberg was that we feel rightly that there are limits to the orders that we are going to be willing to carry out. And at some point, if the orders are so patently unjust that you can't carry them out, you shouldn't. And it's not an excuse to say you were following orders. Uh, question. Um, just about the... the uh... Well, okay, so... So Satan and, and, uh, and the fallen angels... So they, they have fallen because they this, um, this uh, well they they're unhappy with with uh, with the sun being being uh, being proclaimed the sun, getting his his position. Um, I might be opening a whole Pandora's box that's unrelated, but does this at all have anything? Well, does the demonization of the Jews demons. in general? Yeah, do, does that have anything to do with with this uh, with the idea that? Okay, there's a group of people that uh, don't believe this should be the sun. Um, oh, sure, but n that's not what Milton is thinking of. Okay. Right. Um, Milton actually doesn't think that way. Um, it's uh, I think it's very hard to find any real anti-Semitism in Milton, um, and Cromwell was actually um, uh, so someone who who. Um, well, it is Pandora's box, but Cromwell basically was was um, the, accepted the Jews back into England. Um, Cromwell was not anti-Semitic um, in a culture that had been anti-Semitic since 1300. I mean, had been officially anti-Semitic since the 13th century, um, explicitly and officially anti-Semitic, um, and had thought that thought that there were no Jews in the you know it's like it's like there are no gays in the government, um, there are no Jews in all of England. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a parallel demonization, but it's not um, what Milton is thinking of. Yeah. So, is the reason that it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because uh, by choosing to <coughs> excuse me by choosing to say that you know humanity can. You know, thinks that justice is is a form outside of God, um, you know, and you're eating the fruit, therefore you have to choose what is good and evil because you're not accepting what God is choosing as good and evil. Yeah, but, but there's a second level version of this, which is 
You know enough, this is what Raphael says to Adam, you know enough to know that God loves you and that you owe him love. And so it's actually really easy. You have enough knowledge of good. Um, you don't have, actually have to know evil. You have enough knowledge of good before you first feel guilt. You have enough knowledge of good to do what's good um, and not to eat the fruit. And um, so what the knowledge they failed to use was the knowledge you could say that they should, that it's not that the fruit was poisonous, it's that God asked them not to eat it and that's why they shouldn't eat it. Um, now why did they, why did they make this mistake? Because Satan led the, Satan tricked them. And Satan brought them to a place where um, it could go either way. And the way it went was that um, instead of resisting, instead of giving one more bit of resistance and defeating him, um, they didn't resist. Again, the story of Eve and the story of Adam are somewhat different. Um, and what you will find through Book 9 is that Paradise Lost seems very um, sexist and male chauvinist. After Book 9, it all gets reversed. Um, after Book 9, Eve becomes the hero much more than Adam. Um, but Adam's fall is actually, um, in a way, that the um, hardest point in the book to um, not to admire. Adam is right to fall. It's very hard to think that he isn't. Um, but we'll talk about that on Friday. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's hard with the you know enough of good to not do anything wrong. That the point he's making when um, Raphael had come down <coughs> at dinner and talked with Adam and talks about, you know, all like he goes into so much and Eve gets up and leaves. Yeah. Is that, I mean, if she had stayed, would she have not? Well, there, that's a good question. There is a, she does say to Adam, um, you know, I heard everything you said and understood it all, but I wanted to talk to you about it instead of to him. So, Milton um, knows that's an issue, but he um, uh, at least tells you that for Eve, that Eve knew what she should know. Now, it's also true that um, the beginning of Book Nine says, um, you know what? Now there's going to be no more talk. Well, it's it's worth looking at the invocation of Book Nine. There's a, there's uh, we have to begin class in a minute because there's um, a lot to talk about. Um, but at the very beginning of Book Nine, which I know only one of you has read, um, the invocation to Book Nine, there basically, most people will tell you four. I think there are five invocations in Paradise Lost. Um, in fact, I, I may be the only person who thinks there are five, but everyone else is wrong. Um, it, ha it happens. It happens that everyone else is wrong. Um, it's like that cartoon about someone is wrong on the internet. Um, <laughs> so, invocation. happy that you know that. That's very famous. Um, no more of talk where God or angel guest with man as with his friend familiar used to sit indulgent and with him partake rural repast 
permitting him the wild venial discourse unblamed. I now must change those notes to tragic foul distrust and breach disloyal on the part of man, revolt and disobedience on the part of heaven now alienated, distance and distaste, anger and just rebuke and judgment given that brought into this world a world of woe, sin and her shadow death and misery, death's harbinger. Sad task in argument not less but more heroic than the wrath of stern Achilles on his foe pursued thrice fugitive about Troy Wall. What epic is he talking about? Yeah, see, you guys know. The Iliad. Um, or rage of Turnus for Lavinia disespoused. And he had... You rock. Or Neptune's ire, or Juno's, that so long perplexed the Greek and Cytherea's son. All of it? The Greek. Odysseus. Uh-huh. And Cytherea's son. Oh. It's both. Right. Both Aeneas and Odysseus. So, my work, my subject, is not less but more heroic than the Iliad, or the Aeneid, or the Odyssey. If answerable style I can obtain of my celestial patroness, his muse, who deigns her nightly visitations unimplored. Uh, let's just go through the whole um, soliloquy. It'll be our only chance, and it's so great. So that's what I want to talk about. If my muse will give it to me, she comes to me every night, unimplored. I'm inspired every night. He wrote between 20 and 40 lines um, a day. Um, he would think about them at night and then dictate them. He was blind to his daughters um, the next morning, um, usually in the winter, not in the summer. Um, and dictates to me slumbering, kind of like Satan to Eve, or inspires easy my unpremeditated verse. Since first this subject for heroic song pleased me, long choosing and beginning late. So he thought it's a long time that he was thinking about what he would write an epic about. And then he began late. And... Um, you know, he's, he's in his 50s already when he starts Paradise Lost. By the time he gets to book nine, he's um, pushing 60 um, at a time when people didn't live to their 60s very often. The reason Social Security starts at 65 or used to until a couple of years ago is that most people didn't live to 65. <clears throat> so it looked like it would last forever. So... Um, I, he was not sedulous, that is, he didn't work hard, not, not disciplined, not diligent by nature, to indict wars. Hitherto the only argument heroic deemed, chief mastery, to dissect with long and tedious havoc fabled knights in battles feigned. So if you were bored by some of the Aeneid, that's okay. He, he, that's not what he wanted to write. While the better fortitude of patience and heroic martyrdom remained unsung, he didn't want to describe races and games. What's he talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Aeneid, the Iliad, the Odyssey, all, all those races and games, or tilting furniture, emblazoned shields. Whose shield? Achilles or Aeneid? Yep, 
Yup. Oh, the shield. Impresses quaint comparisons and seats, bases and tinsel trappings, gorgeous knights at joust and tournament. Here he's referring to the fairy queen. Then marshaled feasts served up in hall with sewers and seneschals. The skill of... Uh, it's not the same thing. Um... Uh, the skill of artifice or office mean. He didn't want to write about that, all that stuff, that not that which justly gives heroic name to person or to poem. So it makes a poem or a person heroic is fortitude, not being fast and tricky in a race. Me of these, nor skilled, nor studious, <coughs> higher argument remains, a more a higher subject remains. Sufficient of itself to raise that name, that is the name of hero, sufficient of itself to raise that name, unless, and here's Milton speaking with extraordinary personalness, I could fin if I finish this, unless an age too late, or cold climate, or years, damp my intended wing, depressed, and much they may, he's getting old, he may not finish, much they may, if all be mine, not hers who brings it nightly to my ear. So now I've got to do the worst part of this book, the tragic part, where Adam and Eve sin and God is angry. And man no longer talks to an angel guest as friends. No more talking with the angels as friends. There's that guest relationship. No more of talk where God or angel guest with man is with his friend. Familiar used to sit indulgent. Those days are over. So what he's saying is the turn here is one in which God and the angels were our friends. And we just sat and talked with them. Again, think parents and children. You know, think of... Um, that strange experience you have at a certain point in childhood where you realize that your parents, you know, having family dinner with you, um, they're actually treating you as their equals and peers. Like when they have people over and you're not allowed to have dinner with them because they're having dinner with these other people. Um, suddenly you realize, oh, the adults are eating, but most every night they treat us as adults. We all sit together and talk. Um, now those days are over. From now on, you're going to eat in the kitchen, kids. You've just been too bad. Um, that's what's going on here, but of course at a cosmic degree. But the point is that Eve did not sit around chatting with Raphael. She was in the kitchen fixing the, fruit, the fruits and veggies that they ate. Um, so it's not quite the same loss to Eve as it is to Adam. It's not quite the same experience that she had. Okay, I want us to look for five minutes at um, some earlier moments in Paradise Lost. Um, the first is, and again, the context of this, which I've been trying to provide, is that the question is, do you get to judge God or not? Answer, yes, you do. That's the most important thing in Milton, is you get to judge the question that then follows from that, from that yes answer is, are you judging him correctly? Satan's rebellion comes out of disappointment with what he thinks of as God's arbitrariness. 
here's this new person and he's my favorite now. Satan thinks that's arbitrary. He thinks that God is the one who is being arbitrary and picayune and, and describing his actions as unquestionable. So then in his second great speech, maybe, this is book one, line 242, he looks around, he and Beelzebub look around at hell, and then Satan asks, is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light. And that's how Milton will begin book three. Celestial light. This mournful gloom for that celestial light. And then the amazing response to that rhetorical question, be it so. That's what uh, Jean-Luc Picard picks up on. Make it so. Be it so. Since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, that is, since God can simply say cooking babies for their oil is right, he's, he's power. He can dispose and bid what shall be right. If that's true, then furthest from him is best. Since what's just in heaven is whatever God says, then what's good, what's better than good, what's best, is to be as far away from him as possible. Him whom reason hath equaled, Reason, judgment, think, thinking, have we've equaled him. Force hath made supreme above his equals. He's only one because of force. So farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors. Hail, infernal world. And thou, profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. So the mind is what matters, not the external circumstances, not what God says or, de or desires, but what you think. The mind, very famous, is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same? It doesn't matter where you are if your mind is still the same and what I should be all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. God's more powerful. So what? Here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So notice that God speaks a lot about freedom. So does Satan. God says freedom is good. So does Satan. What God doesn't think, I mean what Satan doesn't think, is that God actually means it. Satan is committed to freedom. So the great definition, some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to just repeat it. The great definition that Hegel gives of tragedy is that it's not the story of the battle, we talked about this in the Iliad, not the story of the battle between right and wrong, but the story of the battle between right and right. Both sides are right in tragedy. That's what makes something a tragedy, is when both sides are right. And that's 
pretty much where we're getting to in Paradise Lost. <coughs> At least both sides think they're right. It's not, I'm Dr. Evil, and I want to do things because I'm evil. It's, I'm doing what I'm doing because I think it's right to be doing it. So Satan is using his unconscious and judgment. Yeah? Don't you always do what you think is right? No. Well, according to Plato, yeah. But not in stories. Most stories have people saying, I'm going to do this because I like evil. Um, totally unrealistic to like what Yeah, most is. stories are totally unrealistic. Okay. Yeah. Yes? Um, the next slide was kind of confusing because it sounded like he was saying, like, let's join up, and then it says, um, and call them out to share with us their part. So I didn't really know what he meant by that. Yeah, so he's saying, where are all the other rebel angels? Um, they're still chained to the lake. They're still miserable. Um, they're the associates and co-partners of our loss. They're our faithful friends. Um, they're, they lie thus astonished on the oblivious pool. Um, let's have, let's all join up um, and build a society here um, in the desert. We'll plant orange trees, make it bloom. So, um, good question. Are these the most recent ones? Uh, yes.